Welcome back to another episode of Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong. We are so excited for today's episode. I know, I can't believe it. This is like, I'm so happy for you. <laughs> you have no idea. Truly, <laughs> like amazing. Truly, the guest we have on today, I have I've adored her for a very long time. And when we started this podcast, it was like, I think I refer to it as my pipe dream a million times to have her mm -hmm. on. When we reached out, I just kind of assumed I just kind of assumed we were just putting it into the universe <laughs> and maybe years down the line we'd get to have her on the podcast when we had bigger followings in this. Um but she was very excited to come on and her team was wonderful in helping us coordinate. Um, so without further ado, our guest for today's episode is Jamila Jamil. Yes. Adding an applause sounds. <laughs> I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. um, it is an incredible episode. I'm so grateful for Jamila for coming on and uh, having just a wonderful conversation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Jamila Jamil has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and has been a truly wonderful advocate bringing EDS into kind of mainstream vocabulary. EDS is one of those things that not very long ago we thought was so unique and rare. Um, and so there were a lot of people, especially women, who did not receive diagnoses for it. And I, myself included, <laughs> learned about Jamila or learned about EDS through Jamila's advocacy and um, EDS has to do with hypermobility. I've recently found out that I'm hypermobile and I'm, I'm in the process of being tested for EDS and things like that. So this conversation was quite healing for me just to get to talk to someone who I admire so much and has been through what I'm currently going through. Um, it's a really incredible episode. Stick around. I do want to note for this episode that um, talking about EDS and autism and um, things like this in this episode, we use the phrasing invisible disability a lot, which is something that I've used in my vocabulary for a while. Um, but I recently watched a video from Kaylin Partlow, who is the first guest on this season of the show. And Kaylin beautifully explained the fact that uh, just because you can't see something because you're not aware of it doesn't mean it's actually invisible. Um, and yeah. that things like the way she phrased it was something along the lines of when you lose your car keys, if you're looking for them, they're not invisible <laughs> just because you can't see them. Mm -hmm. And um, then she talked about how if you know the signs and symptoms of certain things, you can see them. It's just about knowing what that looks like. And I think about when it comes to neurodiversity a lot, too, that as the world becomes more equipped to know what certain neurodiversities look like, um, maybe we, it is actually seeable. I certainly uh, use the phrase invisible disability talking about EDS and my hypermobility is very visible. I mean, I can't like raise my thumbs without them going back all the way. And I'm like incredibly flexible in weird ways and my knees always lock. So these are things that you actually can see. And I um, just wanted to note that because I think one of the cool things about the disability community is this willingness to learn and adapt vocabulary. So uh, the thing that Kaylin said in the end of that video was that a better phrasing is non-apparent disability rather than invisible. So that's all just going to say that in this episode, you'll hear that I say invisible disability a lot, but moving forward, I'm changing my 
language to incorporate non-apparent rather than invisible. And I was really excited to get to have this moment and say that on this podcast because I think that it can be hard to learn new words and to learn that something you're saying is like wrong or outdated. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think about like people who still think that you should say like differently abled instead of disabled. Don't say that, by the way. Yeah. Like ever. Don't, <laughs> don't say that. So listeners who are learning, that that might be new to you and that's okay. I am part of the disability community and I'm telling you right now that I'm changing my vocabulary. So this is a great example that there's nothing wrong with admitting I was using language that is now outdated or no longer used by the community. So yeah, that's that's my little spiel that I wanted to do for this episode. I am so excited for our listeners to get to listen and hear this amazing conversation we have with Jamila. Uh, let's get into it. Oh my goodness. You are such an inspiration. Wow, you really are. You're so strong. Can I pet your service dog? Yeah. One, two, three, let's go. We are artists, parents, teachers, good guys, bad guys, students, for sure. I'm not your inspiration. Yeah, I'm fully who I am. Got my own expectations. I'm not your separate story, so I wrote it. Your song. Everything you know about disability is wrong. Everything you know. Yeah, everything you know about disability and wrong. Listeners, we have a very exciting guest on the podcast today. Welcome to Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong, Jamila. Hi, how are you? Emotional. <laughs> um, I have been <laughs> taking deep breaths for the last hour, trying to just collect myself. I I'm so excited for so many reasons, but just generally, you mean so much to me. Um, I am Indian and growing up felt like I didn't have a ton of Indian women who weren't like forcing beauty standards down my throat and telling me what I was supposed to look like. And when you entered the scene, I felt like my life changed. And Iway has meant so much to my sister and I. And just, I think you're really, really incredible. And I'm so grateful you're here today. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with both of you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I've watched you on The Good Place, which is wild because I don't watch a lot of TV. But my partner was like, you have to watch this. So I did. And I just fell in love with it. So, oh, I'm Aaron so is very picky when it comes to comedy. So that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, good. I'll take that high praise. Thank you. So we were super excited to have you on the podcast today, um, especially to talk about the intersections of different type of disability. So uh, I'm autistic mm-hmm. and have struggled with mental illness my whole life. And I also recently, genuinely, because of a lot of your activism, have learned that I'm hypermobile. And <laughs> got a lot to talk about there. Um, Aaron, if you want to give a little bit about you. Yeah, I'm Erin. Hi. Um, Hi. I have muscular dystrophy and anxiety. And yeah, I've had that my whole, my whole life. So I'm used to it and it's not like a huge deal to me. Yeah. And we really mm-hmm. were excited to have you on the podcast because one of the things that, you know, is our, agenda with this podcast that we're trying to really uh, share the message of is that 
all of these things, mental illness, chronic illness, um, are disabilities. And there's a reason that we have been kind of stigmatized to not use the word disability. But everything from, you know, wearing eyeglasses to autism to muscular dystrophy, these are all um, things that need accommodation and need community care. And so um, you've been really vocal and willing to speak about having EDS, which is one of those Mm -hmm. not really talked about disabilities. Um, So just interested Mm -hmm. in your thoughts on what it's been like talking openly about that and how you feel if you've always kind of considered it an illness, disability, how you kind of accepted this in your life. I think um, in certain times of my life, it's been worse than others. Uh, But I was diagnosed when I was nine years old um, by uh, Professor Graham in London at the Great Ormond Street Hospital. So I was uh, hospitalized because I had dislocated something at sports day. And so, and I dislocated several things at sports day and they didn't know how a child could dislocate so many times. And I'd been constantly dislocating since I was a baby. My shoulders would just slip out of their sockets, you know, at the age of about two. And then um, my legs wouldn't work properly. So I'd had problems all along and no one knew what it was because this was the 80s. So no one had heard of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I was super lucky to get diagnosed at nine because it probably saved the rest of my life because I am so tall and I'm so broad that I would make like a great contact sports player, you know, um, but I also would have uh, died of like internal bleeding or, or my bones would have broken or I would have dislocated my neck or something. So it's really good. And I'm very lucky that I found it out at nine. And the reason I say that is because most people, especially women, because our uh, symptoms are dismissed, uh, they don't find out until their 20s or 30s. And then they've already taken a lot of risks. I knew never to drink alcohol. I knew never to take drugs because I didn't want to be, I was already so clumsy because I have um, mm-hmm. dyspraxia, very severe dyspraxia. So I crash into everything. It's like <laughs> a fucking Tom and Jerry movie. Uh, <laughs> pardon my friend, but it's a nightmare. Um, and I fall down the stairs all the time. Uh, I have something called POTS where every time I stand up, I get dizzy and I faint a lot of the time. Um, and severe allergies that just come and go that can close up my throat out of nowhere with something I used to eat. Or if I used to be around candles, sometimes I can become allergic to them. And then six months later, I'm fine. So it's it's not the hardest disability in the world, but it is a dangerous disability, especially because of the internal bleeding that sometimes you can have with Ehlers-Danlos. I have the type three um, and it can be a very unpredictable condition that is like I wake up in pain. I go to bed every night swollen. My legs are twice their size every night and I'm in pain. But I also recognize that amongst the Ehlers-Danlos community, because I had access to that information so young and I knew how to look after myself appropriately and doctors have taken me seriously because I had that diagnosis since the age of nine, I've been relatively lucky. But it does make me want to use there have been times in my life where I've been in a wheelchair and times where I haven't. And I want to raise awareness about the fact that I was not given opportunities when I was in a wheelchair, that mm-hmm. I was given when I wasn't in one. And I'm the same exact person with the same brain, and the same face and the same heart and the same capabilities, pretty much aside from maybe physically. But how differently I was treated in and out of a wheelchair or in and out of crutches is why I feel so passionate about disability advocacy, which I've been doing pretty much since I got into the industry. Yeah, I mean, 
I think you're an incredible advocate and it's just really wonderful that you talk about it and, and acknowledge the privilege of the early diagnosis. I think that that, you know, you, you bring up the, the eighties, mm. but I think that there are people today still dealing with that same, um, just misdiagnosis, especially as you said, women just constantly not getting mm-hmm. answers. Um, I mean, I, Thousands of people have reached out to me to say they only found out they have either benign hypermobility like, or they have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome because I shared the symptoms on Instagram and TikTok and then they went and got a diagnosis. And it's mad that it takes some random actress who name drops <laughs> on a good place <laughs> to give people more insight than their own doctors. But, you know, that's the importance of advocacy. It's the importance of podcasts like this and the work that you guys are doing it. Yeah, I think that that's a something that we the EDS and autism community has in common where we've um especially women are finding out their advocacy and finding out how their own brains and bodies work through people on the internet, not through their doctors. And I think that that sometimes gets mm-hmm. met with a lot of disbelief. Um but I mean it makes to me, it makes perfect yeah. sense that we would figure out ourselves with each other and with common symptoms. And I, I am one of those people that um, I'm sure is in your DMs saying, like, I had no idea what this was. And, and you know, looking mm-hmm. back, it's not um, it's not not seeable. Like, you know, they say the invisible disability, but I, I broke like nine bones between fourth grade and senior year of high school. And was constantly in slings and things because I was hyperextending my knees and arms and um, just getting hurt. And I look back and I'm like, wow, I never once considered that there was something wrong. I had just at such a young age accepted that this was what life was, painful and breakable. Well, I just got, you know, like jokingly blamed for everything. So I was Uh uh, klutz was one, you know, one of my nicknames. And so that's just what that was. And that's fine. and. It's, um, it it just, I'm just so, so, so grateful because I'm someone who's very in denial about my health a lot of the time because I don't like, and I got told a lot of my limitations very young and they were like, you know, at the time they didn't know there was a difference totally between EDS3 and vascular EDS, which is a much more serious type of EDS, which has a very short life expectancy. So they weren't sure which one I had and were like, you might die in your 40s mm-hmm. you know so that's a really intense thing to be told as a child uh and being told that i might um you know have certain limitations on the life that i want to live it's for example and what i would be able to do for a job and i've always felt like however best i can within reason i would like to make decisions by myself about my own limitations i don't want to hear it from some doctor when i'm 10 years old and so i've always been in quite a lot of denial and i'm really glad that I had someone really, really warn me about how to live carefully um, so that I didn't, you know, make mistakes that would have made me in even more pain. Yeah, and I think a lot of, like, coming to understand your own disability, because there's a lot of shame that is attached to disability that, like, even if you have all these symptoms, saying out loud, I have EDS and I have a disability is still really uncommon because mm-hmm. there is that negativity attached to disability. And then, Which is ridiculous because yeah. we're, we're the biggest legends. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyone who goes through difficulty or suffering during the day and the day is harder for you and you still show up 
and you still turn up to your podcast or you do whatever or you go on that date or whatever you do in life that involves peeling yourself out of the little cave you want to hide in it's like Mm -hmm. you're stronger than everyone yeah yeah we literally this morning we're talking about like having a stomach ache and just being able to keep going because we're just used to used Mm -hmm. to being in pain which is actually sometimes a superpower of being like oh everything hurts today but it's a that's a regular tuesday so i can go interview the most famous person i've ever interviewed (laughs) (laughs) so what do you two do about the how are you guys working on the shame element that you shouldn't be feeling how do you work on getting rid of that um for easter seals we've done a lot of content about disability pride and just feeling not ashamed of who you are. We have like a writers that we hired to talk about it. We've done this podcast, which I think is really changing the way people think about disability. So I'm just like, I'm so excited that I get to do what I love as a job. It's so great. And you're making your own rules. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we just kind of pitched this podcast idea for the sake of getting being able to be in community with other people with disabilities. I think that that for me, that's how I have combated the shame is that, you know, I'm uh, I knew that I was not neurotypical long before I had heard the word neurotypical. Um, but I didn't figure mm-hmm. out I was autistic until my early 20s. And there was a lot of shame in that, in both shame in who I am and accepting how my brain works and also shame in, well, if I could make it 20-something years without a diagnosis, do I even deserve to take up space in in the disability community? And genuinely, it has been meeting other really cool disabled people and creating a community of disabled people who are doing exactly what we're talking about, having a bad day, feeling like crap, and still going on to be an advocate and going on to write amazing things and uh, star in films and write films and do all these things um, that I've been able to learn more about myself through my disabled peers than I ever would have been able to alone. And I have noticed that my own view of myself has changed so much since um, moving my mindset from being I have a mental illness to I am disabled. Um, when I had, when I would just say I have mm-hmm. a mental illness, it felt like this thing that I had that I could conquer if I just worked hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then mm-hmm. I met other incredible disabled people and learned that life is so much better if instead of trying to like push myself through something, I just learn my my own needs and I accommodate myself. Mm-hmm. Well, representation is mm-hmm. also everything, right? You know, look at the way that will and grace move the needle for how even middle america which are more conservative viewed gay people uh we we look at the way that mental illness has become further stigmatized because of hollywood's representation of Mm -hmm. mentally ill people often being paranoid schizophrenics who murder other people you know who have the split jekyll hyde personality we've seen both the damage uh, and the fact that like people with uh, severe disabilities uh, are can, are made the sad, 
arc, story arc in a non-disabled person's life and they're portrayed as tragedy and burden and a great mm-hmm. sorrow. And, and you, you feel like, oh, wow, the main character is so noble for loving or caring for this person. And I, I just think it's so despicable that that's the only real representation that people with disabilities have. And then even those parts are taken by fucking non-disabled actors. Yeah. Uh, it's insane. And I remember I spoke about this a few years ago. This isn't like, oh, I'm so noble. This is just me knowing that, you know, when I was a kid and I was very sick and I was bed bound, I didn't want to see someone who didn't live that experience play that part. I'm aware we have to be able to suspend belief. And I think there's a line. But I also think if there's only four or five roles written a year at best, at best, four or five notable roles written for people with disabilities. Like, let's include some of the community. But I remember being offered a part a few years ago where it was a horror movie and I had had all my limbs cut off by a sort of serial killer. And I I was like, why go through all the bother of green screening me and Mm -hmm. me not knowing, me having to spend months learning how I would naturally move if I didn't have certain limbs just hire someone who doesn't have those limbs. Literally. Right. What's the issue? What's like, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's better. You're going to have a much more authentic experience. And it's the one role that that person can play. So why would we take it away? Yeah. And, and you don't see the, yeah. And you don't right. see the character before. So it doesn't make sense because that, that might make more sense the way you see them in both with and without limbs. <laughs> but this is fucking ridiculous. And also, if you can do the green screen and everything, you can also give someone prosthetics. Right. If, you know, if they're able to use them. And then they can put some jeans on and then they can play both sides of the character. It's really not that big a deal, but it is on us to make sure that we don't take up that space. Even if I have an invisible disability, it doesn't give me carte blanche to then take up all roles of a disabled person. You know, I used to not be able to hear when I was younger. I would go in and out of, depending on how many operations I was having, of being able to hear. And I was offered the role of a deaf person a few years ago and again had to be like, no, I used to not be able to hear, but now it would be more effective for you to have a deaf person. And again, this isn't me virtue signaling. It's just me calling for the fact that it's it's not the end of the world to pass on those roles and go on, do the plethora of other things. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that in saying that, you know, there is that kind of need to say like, and I'm not virtue signaling. There's something about disability and if you talk about it in a way it feels like well they couldn't authentically believe this they must just be trying to sound like they care and it's like no people actually care about disability and representation it's not no, no. i know but there is a lot of like back slapping allyship cookie that's stuff, very true you know what i mean so it's important <laughs> to just make sure that i'm being clear uh, and this comes from my own experience like i didn't want to watch a white person play an indian person I, there's certain things that are just true to the experience and let's just not let's not dilute the pool completely to everyone when so few roles and we need also better roles we need more interesting roles we need normal roles with mundane average life stories sorry about this um and we also need different roles we need better roles we need someone with a with a typical life story who's just in a relationship and the arc of their story is their relationship issue. Do you know what I mean? Not the fact that they're dying of a rare disease that's going to break the real protagonist's heart. It's so obscene. All my disabled friends don't, like, they don't have these big dramatic lives. They have these interesting 
uh, nuanced lives and romances and marriage and kids and the struggle that comes with all of that. There's so many great stories to tell. The character is so different. The perspective you have in life if you've grown up in some sort of pain or or suffering or 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 just having to look at the world and operate it through in a diff- operate through it in a different way. Those are fascinating stories. Everyone looks at people with disabilities and they say, "Oh, you're so inspiring." It's like, well, then fucking put put these amazing stories and these amazing yeah, and on also camera. put them on camera when they're not inspiring. You know, we have. Uh, I want to see disabled villains. I want to see boring disabled people. I want to see everything, but we. Well, one issue is that we do have a lot of people who are like, we do have a lot of disabled villains. Yeah. One of the only times that we see villains are when they have some sort of disability or some sort of deformity. Oh, yeah. The, code, you know the I mean? coding of like of scars mean you're evil or if you, you know, we actually are. Yeah. Or missing an arm and that's why they're so bitter now and they're killing or, you everyone. Know, like, it's it just goes all the way back to like nonsense. Captain Hook. <laughs> it's like these absolute, we actually yeah. um, have a initiative of Easter Seals that's like, a, it's called ES Gaming and it's about creating an inclusive gaming space for disabled gamers. And we have been talking about that, that uh, disability isn't scary actually, but ableism is. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's, mm-hmm. you know, when I say disabled villains, I mean like, where their stories aren't based around disability. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You mean like Villanelle. Right. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, we are seeing some changes, which is great. I am so grateful you uh, presented at the Easter Seals Disability Film Challenge Awards this year, which that I think the film mm-hmm. challenge, which comes out of our Southern California affiliate, is doing so much for creating that representation mm-hmm. both on screen and off screen. What was that like for you being a part of um, that experience? It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever been to. And the atmosphere in the room was of so much fun. There was so much uh, purity in the room because it was about art. It was really about art. It wasn't just about money or attention or fame, like a lot of award ceremonies you get to go to, where the values have just become a bit emptier because people take certain things for granted. Uh, There was a real energy in the room where you were like something, like incredible stories are coming out of here and everyone's so excited to work together and it didn't feel like a fiercely competitive space. It felt like everyone was really rooting for each other. And the work was great and the people were amazing and the atmosphere was just really hopeful and I kept on thinking while I was there how much that would have meant to me when I was younger and how glad I am that it's around now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you were growing up dealing with um, so much pain and being in and out of surgeries, things like that, did you did you know anyone else who was going through similar things as you? No, no. And I was, uh, you know, my school didn't have any uh, like uh, I guess, what would I call it? I didn't have any elevators or anything like that. It was up five flights of stairs. So I either couldn't go to school or I would have to get up there on crutches. And that's really intense on like a small winding Victorian staircase. And I would always just be late uh, by about 10, 15 minutes, which is a huge disadvantage to every single class and then get chastised by the teacher for being late mm-hmm. and just had to constantly miss school, make up for it, had the constant stress of always being so far behind my class, having to catch up to make my grade to keep my scholarship. So it was a really intense time. Um, but I didn't know anyone. And I think people have this feeling when they are around people with a visible disability, which I had at the time of, oh, I don't want to catch it. They think it's contagious and they feel sad and anxious looking at you. So they just don't want to see you. So they hide you so you don't get invited to parties and you don't get people make a choice for you as to what you can and can't do. And that's really fucking annoying. 
Mm-hmm. And that's something that we all have to speak about more, which is that you don't know. Like I, I've had people with disabilities on my podcast talking about the fact that they like to be thrown around during sex. You know, <laughs> that's something that people wouldn't know that she likes because she's in a wheelchair, but she's fine to do it. And so I think people like Lolo Spencer as well is we an amazing her. person yeah. who uses her, she uses her platform to be able to show that people with disabilities in wheelchairs go out, get hammered, have fun, <laughs> have sexy times uh, and live like raucous, naughty lives. And that's so important. I, I think she's such an important voice on the internet so we just need more of that yeah people don't see us as like full people they Mm -hmm. just see disability and to them disability is sad and that's it Mm -hmm. and so like people are always surprised when i say yeah i have a romantic partner i went to college I have a job. They're just like, oh my gosh, you're amazing. I'm like, <laughs> so inspiring. Yeah. And I'm like, Listen, what else am I going to do? Just um, not do anything? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I think there's something about the hiding away. I was interested, Jamila, you've posted some things in the past couple of weeks about your time in Europe and seeing the way that beauty standards were different and how in the US we tend to hide away um, like people as they age. I think there's a very similar mm-hmm. thing going on with disability where um, like you don't see the representation and there is a kind of push to hide people away. And whether that's um, people whose behavior is different or who look physically different, I think that there's some tie in there of how, you know, we just shouldn't hide anyone away and we should stop like putting moral standards on the way people look. <laughs> Well, it's all funded by capitalism, right? And capitalism mm-hmm. has this fear of stepping outside the boundary mm-hmm. of a uniformed look. And so they, because they need to set a standard to make sure everyone's striving towards that standard and buying the same products to be able to look the same. And so if anyone doesn't really fall within that, um, and that means they're <laughs> over the age of 30 or they have a disability or they have a scar or they have imperfect skin. Like I think we've we've had some progress of people like vitiligo or people in wheelchairs entering like like the mainstream advertising space. I think that's great. But I think we could I think we could keep going. I think we also have like, you know, amazing Paralympians, for example, who do loads of great modeling jobs, etc. But I think we can just keep pushing it because I remember challenging this huge magazine director, editor rather, about why everyone looks the same in her magazine and she was like we're selling a fantasy and it's like who the fuck are you to decide what a fantasy is mm-hmm. you don't know what someone's fantasy is anyone can be anyone else's fantasy and it's actually not great to set this standard that then makes people who fight who feel attracted to someone who doesn't look like the quote-unquote norm being that like thin non-disabled you know mm-hmm. what i mean um, often white light lighter skinned uh and with a certain type of aesthetic and symmetry if they find someone outside of that attractive, they kind of second guess themselves and feel a sort of shame. Like, is this a fetish? It's like, no, it's not a fetish. You just like who you like. You're just attracted to someone's pheromones and attracted to someone's face and body. And it's not what you see in the magazines. And that's great. There's nothing fucking wrong with you. Um, but we are, we kind of like create this explicit shame in people when we set these standards. And for a long time, we left out people of different race and people of different genders. And the one area that I do in, 
all my fucking interviews I've done, I talk about this one area where we even have like fat acceptance now. We still don't really have mainstream disabled acceptance. We still just don't really have that visibility. And by the way, when I say that in magazines, they cut it out because they know that I'm calling them out. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to even have the conversation outside of my own Instagram or being able to come on podcasts like yours because everyone gets so uncomfortable. It really is that that discomfort and that like that it's so hard to combat against. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're going in these mainstream places and then they're they're editing your words? That that's sounds incredibly frustrating. How was why I started my own podcast so that I don't need them. You know yep, what I mean? That's exactly how we felt. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Um, and I'm aware that I'm so lucky to have the platform that I do to be able to have such a, um, you know, big opportunity with the podcast. But it's just infuriating. And I think it can change. And I think it's going to change. And I think, you know, elevating voices like yours or oh, Imani Barber is amazing. Yeah. Like all these great, all these great advocates who are public i think you know i think i think that's that's so so important and so good for us but it is incredibly weird how silenced this conversation is even after a pandemic where we learned that everyone could work from home <laughs> entire industries and uh different types of jobs outside of i think medicine although even telehealth medicine boomed uh, mm -hmm. we learned that all these times that we told people if you can't work in the office you can't work here that all turned out to be bullshit. Uh, also, loads of people ended up with long, long COVID, which mm -hmm. is a type of a disability, like severe long COVID, uh, or people became physically debilitated uh, for various different reasons during the pandemic. And even then, we still can't see that disability can happen to you or to someone you love at any point. It is ridiculous and short-sighted, <laughs> which I hope doesn't come across as an ableist term, but it comes. It's not. It's not helpful to anyone to shun this very normal, very common thing. Tens of millions of people in the United States. Like, Absolutely. It's not an accident. Um, we say, you know, the, the statistic that's often used is like one in four people, but that's not even considering glasses or people who have knee pain or like this is a comp, this is a natural part of life and we just hide it away. Yeah. And as you get older, it yeah, happens to everyone. It, I mean, yeah. old age will happen. <laughs> and there will be disabilities that come with it. And I think, you know, you mentioning the thing about um, that we could work from home and bringing up capitalism. I think that this is a part of why there is a, a push to keep disabled people hidden away. And I've I've seen um, mm -hmm. people like Imani Barberin talking about how, you know, a disabled identity is an inherently political identity because it means believing that we should accommodate one another and that we should care for one another. And that mm -hmm. if people can work from home saying you need to come in office isn't acceptable anymore. We need to. And, you know, there's such a capitalism runs on independence and buy all these products so you can do it by yourself and you don't need anyone else. Yes, and absolutely. And that can't doesn't exist in the disabled communities I've been in. It's It's all about interdependence and community and how we... Uh, help one another with what we can and can't do. And I think that that would fe be fearful for some people at the top who want us all to stay as individual as possible. Well, they just don't, um, they just don't recognize that given that the millions and millions of people who do uh, exist with a disability, like 
they have their own money. It might not be as much money as someone without a disability, but it's called the purple pound in England. I don't know what it's called in the United States, as in the spending power of the disabled community. What's it called here? Just the spending power. Spe- oh, the spending power. That's oh, right. all I've oh, ever heard it referred yeah. to as. Okay, fine. So it's referred to as the purple pound for some reason in the United Kingdom. And they have a shit ton of money. There's like something like back yeah. when I was um, uh, talking about this like first in mainstream media on mainstream news, I think it was like 88 million a year is the spending power in the United Kingdom, which is a very small place. That's not insignificant. I was campaigning to get more venues, even though they're listed because England's a very old country, to be able to have access for people with disabilities. And I kept on being told by the vendors that um, <laughs> that they don't have enough clientele to justify the reparation costs. And it's like, well, if they can't get in the fucking building, <laughs> how are you going to have the clientele? They're outside waiting to be let in. And people are denying themselves $88 million. Like concerts only allow in, what, like 30 people with disabilities? And it's like... People with disabilities would fucking love to go to more raves and concerts and all kinds mm-hmm. of things like that. It's just so obscene. And it only like it's the same thing with like we still we still make clothes that really go up to like an extra, a small mm-hmm. extra large at best in most stores. And the majority of the Western countries in which we do that have people who are a size mm-hmm. 16 plus which is an extra, extra large in certain stores or extra, extra, extra large. Like most people are 16 and over. We just shut people out. We deny. It It like doesn't make any business sense to deny these vast populations uh, the ability or inclusion to um, participate. It doesn't make, it literally doesn't make any sense. It's just, I've been doing a movement um, called Move for Your Mind, which is an exercise movement that is disabled inclusive and inclusive of you, whatever size you are and whatever age you are. It's where we're not making exercise about how, uh, quote unquote, strong you can look or physically fit or thin you can be. It's mm-hmm. just about the neurological benefit of doing literally anything that is within your capacity, anything that is moving any part of your body that you are well enough to move for just five to 15 minutes a day and how much that can change your mood and your sleep and your cortisol levels. And I didn't realize how much of a gap there was for something like that where we're not taking ourselves seriously, we don't have perfect form, all these adverts that have disabled athletes in it. These are the mm-hmm. best athletes on the planet. They're the best looking, like most like normative uh, beauty standards. Uh, and they're like fast and they've got like not an ounce of fat anywhere, like the most insane ripped muscles and they're doing like a 80 foot jump or something ridiculous like that. And that's great. And that's really important and amazing. But it's also like, People are superhumans, all these athletes in these adverts. I, I would like to see people with disabilities who aren't also um, exceptional superhumans. <laughs> right. We see the same thing with, like, you know, you have to win a Nobel Prize to be acceptable. And that, there's that um, need to be perfect, perfect if you don't fit the gold beauty standard, which is just ridiculous. And I think you make such a brilliant point that accessibility is frankly just a good business decision. <laughs> that's, you know, mm-hmm. I... Absolutely. It's, it's just common sense. And I think that that's important. And I applaud you for always starting new movements and trying to get these conversations going. I, I think that even um, what you've done with Iway and bringing just t- conversation around eating disorder to the mainstream has been incredibly important and has 
is is another area that doesn't really get talked about as disability, but is. <laughs> and um, so I just applaud all of the work you do and how you always seem to have a new movement. Do you think that comes from dealing with shit as a kid? <laughs> yeah, I think it's just from not really understanding what was wrong with me and thinking I was the only person experiencing all these things that turned out to be really, really pervasive. And actually hundreds of millions of people around the world were also struggling with this, but none of us were talking to each other because there was no representation. So I'm just always trying to create that representation, not just by myself, but trying to bring in people who can, you know, educate me and everyone about their different experiences. It's from a selfish place of like my wanting to gift my 12-year-old self and the next generation of 12-year-olds with something to look at that reminds them of them. And, you know, as you were saying, like eating disorders are the highest cause of death in any mental illness. Like these are really serious subjects. And and I'm glad to have been a part of really making that a mainstream, normalized conversation. Because if we can't see these things, if we can't see the fact that people are afraid of disability, if we can't see that mm-hmm. um, people are afraid of fat people and hate fat people, if we can't talk about these things publicly, then they will continue to exist. Like all abusive systems thrive on people not talking about it. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so all we have to do is really, my belief is that exposing it is a huge part of the journey of destroying it because the enemy can no longer hide in plain sight because we've all chosen to look the other way. And I think that's why I'm so annoying and loud is just because it really changes our lives to understand ourselves. Look how much, you know, look how amazing you feel both being in communities where you feel understood and seen and heard makes such a difference to your mental health. Absolutely. And and just having people who are willing to be annoying and loud, I think it's important. And it gives, um, when someone like yourself who has this platform is willing to talk on these issues, it gives the rest of us desire to do things like this and start our small podcast through our nonprofit. You know, it's uh, really incredible. And I, I, I just a million times thank you for everything you do. So would so what would what is your kind of what are both of your ambitions in this industry? I uh for me, like kind of what you said, I want kids growing up to understand that because you're disabled doesn't put any limitations on your life and what you can experience because when I was young I was the only disabled kid in the entire school and I was in the 80s 80s and 90s and I had friends and I had a good time but I also didn't consider myself disabled because I had a lot of shame attached to that based on what I saw in the media, on TV, and I thought, that's not me. I'm not unhappy. I'm happy. And so I think to give kids that representation in media is so important and will help them feel proud of who they are. Cool. Yeah. That's really cool. I love you, Erin. Yeah, I think that that's... (laughs) I'm still kind of early in my in my journey of it all. I was um, living in Los Angeles, pursuing acting and directing when I found out I was autistic. And 
Um, it just kind of rocked my world. I ended up moving back home to Illinois and figuring out what I needed to do and spend a couple of years genuinely just uh, being selfish and figuring out my own needs. And I'm now venturing back into, you know, I'm working on my first short film that I'm directing right now. And so I think my my big thing there is just right. um, really accommodating myself how I need to and being okay with it. Like, maybe I do need to live in Chicago because my family's in Illinois and I need that support. And it's okay to do that. Mm-hmm. And we have stuff like this now. Because we do Literally, everything. I mean, we're doing this. Now. I'm talking to you from Chicago. And I think that that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I'm at right now is just um, showing how easy accommodating yourself can be. And that's what I want to continue to do is let people accommodate themselves. Because I think that especially as women, I, I'm extraordinarily white passing, but especially for brown and black women, there's this need to just accept pain and accept discomfort. And I want to be loud yeah. about accommodating my own needs. One um, mistake I feel like I made for the first half of my career is having such a bee in my bonnet about not wanting mm-hmm. to be seen as sick and not wanting to be discounted from opportunities that I would push myself way too hard to try and prove something. And I never took breaks and I never took holidays and I didn't go to the doctor often enough. and I didn't get my scans or my blood tests. Uh, I wasn't aware that I was developing like the beginning signs of like osteoporosis because of my eating disorder because I was starving myself. Like I, I didn't know what was happening. I was just, I was working harder than people mm-hmm. with no health problems, um, which you do kind of have to do. But I was really just like basically yeah. killing myself. And One thing that was great for me about the pandemic was that moment of still that made me remember that, what am I doing? Like, we could all just die tomorrow. Why am I going to like, why am I waiting till I'm dead to rest and enjoy my life and see my friends? It's just not worth it. Like how much, like the, I'd rather live in a smaller house, which I think I'm going to move to. Like, I think I'd rather have a cheaper lifestyle and work less and not be in constant pain. You know, I'm glad that I did She-Hulk. It was insane to do stunts (laughs) with A-list Dallas syndrome. They were terrified of me as to like when I was next, something was next going to fall out of, you know, its socket. Um, But we made it through with a lot of KT tape, you know, and a lot of casts and a lot of uh, whatever you call it. Sorry, what's it called? Um, The Mm -hmm. support straps that have metal in them stop my ankles from like falling off my feet uh or falling off my legs um but we did it and I'm really glad I did it but I wouldn't do that for a year straight I wouldn't now only go into action movies like I'm going to look after myself like while I want to be an example of the fact that you can achieve your dreams it's also okay to somewhat modify your dreams don't cut yourself off from every opportunity but also go like my whole life can't just be about being in discomfort to prove something. I also need to have pleasure. And so it's about being able to live somewhere between the politics of representation, but also the pleasure aspect of life. And not being, not putting yourself in a position of, you know, so much pain and discomfort uh, that actually you don't really have a great quality of life. We still deserve a good quality of life. And it's okay to say that I have some limitations. It's okay to navigate mm-hmm. the pride that comes with being told you can't because of something that you are born with or that you develop, um, something that happened to you or whatever, or that you, you know, exist with. 
it's it's fucking infuriating. It's really hard not to want to prove everyone wrong, but also you have to find the happy balance so that you don't make yourself sicker or ruin your quality of life. Which I think is an important thing to say because a lot of people try to be so inspiring that they endanger other people who are sick. And I think that I ran the risk of doing that when I was younger in the way I used to speak about how proud I was to not be held back by it. It's like, I am held back by it. It's then ice, ba- ice packs and and hospital visits and hospital stays and uh, adrenal failure and all these kind of different things that happened to me because I took it too far. And I think it's responsible for me to use my platform to say, like, fucking play the long game. Yeah, I think that that I would hypothesize that that's going to be a game-changing thing for some of our listeners to hear because there is so much pressure when you feel like you have to prove someone wrong who is, especially when you've been underestimated, um, that is mm-hmm. just, I I know I needed to hear that. And I think that there's, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners who needed to hear that as well, that you have to find that middle ground and that your quality of life is worth it <laughs> more than <laughs> hurting yourself. But, yeah. I also have quite an interesting insight, um, which is that I've now met, not to go full Tahani um, from The Good Place, but I've now met a lot of the mm-hmm. most famous people in the world who have everything and they don't have health <laughs> issues or not yet. Um, and they're not very happy. And so no one talks really about that. And so I think that people are like, I'm going to push and push and push and push and push, whether they're sick or not, or whether they have a disability or not. And they don't know that it's just like a bunch of money and shit at the top. It's not worth it. So I think also seeing that, I was like, well, I'm doing all this to then feel really lonely in a castle somewhere far away from my friends. Uh, no, thank I'm, you. <laughs> yes, I'm so happy you're saying all of this. It's very validating. I was signed with a great agency right out of college and had to give that up to move back home. And I, it felt like I was giving up the potential for dreams. But I have dinner every Wednesday night with my best friend now. <laughs> And that, that is mm-hmm. what is like, you know, no fame is going to mean as much to me as that. <laughs> In a much less like politically interesting way, I think I did that with also yes. no longer starving myself where I was like, I don't have the energy for sex. My hormones are dying. <laughs> you know, I don't have any estrogen left in my body. I, uh, my, like, I, I have no chat because all I've done all day is think about the calories and in and calories out. I I was sacrificing my pleasure and my joy and the the mo- the fun of eating yeah. a pizza with your best friends in front of the television. All of that for this beauty standard in the industry. I was like, you know what, if the beauty industry or like, you know, fashion industry, the sample sizes are too small for me and this is, you know, you have to pay extra money to have them made bigger. So there's this kind right. of like fat tax put on things which if I'm having to pay for it means people who are bigger than me have to pay even more money for that to be done or won't Mm -hmm. even be loaned the dress in the first place and the reason that's important is because our careers depend on our ability to wear fashion clothes in the fashion magazines and then get press and if we can get press then we're more likely to get another job and so I was just like well then maybe I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna pay a thousand dollars for something to be made for a human-sized adult (laughs) for it to go from baby gap to my actual size uh i was like so i'd rather just not go so i just don't go to a lot of events very often because i'm like i'm not paying that money and i'm not Mm -hmm. gonna like be anxious for the next three weeks about a red carpet about a piece of red material 
<laughs> that's 20 feet long. I'm not going to not have sex and have fun with my friends and enjoy my life and enjoy mental health when I'm lucky yeah. enough to have it back. I'm not going to sacrifice my kidneys and my liver again. I can't believe what we do. Like we thin our hearts when we starve ourselves. I've been thinning my heart for 20 years for a fucking yeah. red carpet. It doesn't make any sense. So I've just decided that like, you know what? Maybe not. I don't have to, maybe I don't have to break through every grass. <laughs> sorry, grass. Maybe I don't have to break through every yeah. glass ceiling. Maybe I can just find a middle ground and have that be okay and enough for me. And then the next person will go and do what I've done and then they'll top it a bit. I don't have to break every right. record by myself. There's, in, there should be enough of us in here rather than the scarcity mindset right. of like, I've got to be the one to do it. No, let's make space for others, welcome us all in, and together we can collectively break all the barriers yes. and in then ways. in making space for others, you make time for your own pleasure, <laughs> which is very necessary. Yeah. Cake and all The things we need. You know what I mean? The things we need. Get, amen. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when you had a childhood yeah. filled with pain. Let me have an adulthood filled with cake and orgasms. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this has been yeah. such an incredible conversation. Before we let you go, we have our uh, final question we always ask, which is our our podcast is called Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong. What do people get wrong about you? Oh, what do people get wrong about me? Oh, God, I don't know. I don't really care what people think about me. I think... Um, yeah, I think I think it's just none of my business. Uh, but I um I think some people think I talk about disability mm -hmm. for attention, and it couldn't be further from the truth because th they think that I'm doing it as some sort of a grift to make money. You don't make more money uh -uh. when you yeah. tell people that you're not very well because then your insurance costs money costs more when you get hired. Uh, so coming out and speaking about it publicly was something I did that guaranteed I would get less money and less opportunities. But I did it because then there can be more of us. If if I get to raise awareness, then there can be more of us who go, oh, I've got this condition and I'm in and out of a wheelchair sometimes and I'm in pain all the time. But she did that. So maybe I could do something like that as well. It's worth it. I love that. And I love that, you know, we obviously know know that and also just need to be reminded of that. It's not really my business <laughs> what people get wrong about me. That's really good. <laughs> Well, no, like I hate loads of people, loads. I'd say the majority of people and it doesn't bother them and they don't know about it and it doesn't make their lives worth. It doesn't actually affect them. So why should I mind if anyone hates me? Yeah. I find everyone annoying. It's okay if other people find me annoying. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't have to ruin my life as your personal taste and it's not my fucking problem. As an and autistic person who often info dumps yeah. way too much and then looks up and realizes that people are not uh, wanting to hear what I have to say, I needed that and I love that. <laughs> That's really, really good that I can remember that yeah. I don't like that many people either. So why would I care if they like me? <laughs> yeah, this is not a big deal. I had to turn to that realization as an adult because if I cared what people thought about me, I'd be in bed trying. Mm -hmm. all day and my mom was just like Aaron don't give a shit about what they think and I was like yeah yeah okay so that like that mindset just changed my life entirely other people's uh, other people's opinions mm -hmm. can become a prison and I yes. think it's really amazing that you have parents that liberated you from that Absolutely. and Aaron you have you have liberated me from that in this 
last year of us making content Aww. together. I think that that's been one of my favorite parts of our friendship is you just reminding me to screw what other people think. <laughs> yes, it's important. Absolutely. Well, Jamila, thank you so, so much for coming on this podcast. I I know you have lots going on in your life and lots of things. And the fact that you would take time to come onto our little podcast and honestly open it up to a wider audience is just, it, I'm just really, really grateful. Well, thank you both for coming. For, uh, thank you both for inviting me and uh, for having this wonderful open conversation and good luck with this podcast. And I'm sure this is just the beginning of many brilliant things you're both going to do. You're both very Thank special. you so much. Thank you so much. So thanks for listening, everybody. We had such a great time. I love Jamila. I've been I've following her on Instagram, and I totally recommend it because she has some great thoughts, important thoughts. Definitely check it out. Definitely. And see you next time in the next episode. Bye. <laughs>